we have been reminded that we are utterly dependent upon your grace. And so, Lord, we would pray that today you would teach us what that means in terms of walking in this world that is so out of step with your ways. Will you use your word, your spirit in our hearts? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you uh, will remember Lee Atwater. If you remember him, depending on probably your political persuasion, you have different kinds of memories of him. He is, uh, was seen by some as uh, uh, portraying the dirtiest aspects of politics and electioneering. And by others, they just said he, just, he plays hardball, that's all. And he gets results. And if he gets results, then it's okay. Well, regardless of how you remember that part of him, most would remember that he was ruthless in his short life. And yet, in his late 30s, he got a brain tumor. And as things like that will sometimes do, it caused him to take a hard look at what he had done in his life. And he had, by his accounts and by those close to him, an encounter with God and a close encounter in terms of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, whether you want to believe that or not, at least don't be cynical that God can't work at the end of one's life. We know he can. I've seen it. But at the very least, he began acting and talking like one who followed Jesus. He went back to people that he had treated ruthlessly and personally and very publicly apologized. But I want to read to you a statement shortly before his death at age 40. He said, my illness helped me to see that what was missing in society is what was missing in me. A little heart, a lot of brotherhood. The 80s were about acquiring, acquiring wealth, power, prestige. I know, I acquired more wealth, power, and prestige than most. And he did. Catch this next phrase. But you can acquire all you want and still feel empty. What power wouldn't I trade for a little more time with my family? What price wouldn't I pay for an evening with friends? It took a deadly illness to put me eye to eye with that truth. But it is a truth that the country, caught up in its ruthless ambitions and moral decay, can learn 
on my dime. In other words, at his expense. How contemporary is Ecclesiastes? That could have been practically lifted out of the book of Ecclesiastes, except for his personal references. And the writer of Ecclesiastes would say this, look, I've acquired all of this, but you can acquire all of this and still feel empty. And as we look into his journal, he would say, I want you to learn on my dime. Learn from my experiences. You don't have to do everything that I have done. I've been there, and it was empty when I got it. Now, the passage today, what we see is his deep spiral into cynicism. And again, how contemporary is this? You can't read this without putting modern day applications on this. Look at verse 16. He says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Now here's the preacher talking about another frustration of living in this world, and that is living with injustice. He's saying that instead of justice, wickedness prevails, and in the very place where you should expect righteousness to prevail, there's wickedness. And it's frustrating for him. Now, what, what are those places? Where would that be? Well, the most obvious, maybe the, the court system. And probably everybody in this room know, knows somebody who has had an experience, even though we've got the, probably the best system in the world. But it's not perfect. It cannot be. So we look there and we see injustice, and in other parts of the world, they would say, absolutely, I I wouldn't go to the courts. Or maybe in the government. And again, especially in other parts of the world, but here as well. How frustrating that can be to, to sense that, regardless of who's in control of the government, and then even the churches. How often does that make the news? Well, it seems like whenever there's an injustice in the church, it makes the news. And I guess to some degree we should say, well, that's because we we claim to believe something, so it should be news when there's injustice or unrighteousness, but we see it way too often. I hear of it way too often within the church and those who are in the church. Solomon is saying there's just not justice there. I recently finished reading the newest biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer by Eric Metaxas. It's called Bonhoeffer. 
amazingly enough. And uh, it's a wonderful book. But it's very frustrating to read. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Germany when Hitler was rising to power. And it talked about his struggles because he saw what was coming somehow. He saw when a lot of others, very intelligent and even very godly people, didn't see what was coming, but he saw it. And he knew he had to deal with it, even though he was a pacifist. And so he resisted in the best way he knew. But as you read through that book, it's, it's frustrating to read because what you see again and again is injustice, man's wickedness toward man, how, how evil one man can be to another, and how frustrating it is when it becomes institutionalized. Solomon goes on in the next verse, and he shows, at least in this part of the book, I, I want to tell you, in case you're, you know, uh, as you read in Ecclesiastes, you're saying, wow, this, this is a hard one to read. It is. It is. But there is resolution. And we always come to, to look at the above-the-sun perspective, and in the end of the book, uh, there will be resolution. But we have kind of a glimpse of that here in verse 17. He says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. So he, he comes to really what's the, the right conclusion, and that is, okay, well, there's injustice here, but God will judge, and because of that, I can live with this. But then, in the very next phrase, he begins to slip quickly back into that cynical downward spiral. It's almost as if he said, oh, well, this is true, but then immediately he fell back in to that frustration. Uh, look at uh, verse 18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. You get that? He's saying... Same thing happens to humans and, and animals. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. Now, most commentators believe that here he's referring to what happens to our bodies and not so much a, a, a denial that... Uh, uh, man has a soul or anything like that. And I think, I think that fits because of what we see coming next where he talks about uh, the, the dust. Now, I often from this pulpit use the phrase, we live in a fallen world. What do I mean by that? Well, I often explain it. But what we're talking about, we're going back to the very beginning, to the Garden of Eden, when Man fell into sin. Sin entered the world. They, as our representative, brought sin into the world. And so we, because of that, are sinners. And not only do we experience frustrations in this world and experience sin, but the whole world is cursed as well. That's what it is to live in a fallen world. And so we face things like disease and death 
things that they didn't have to face before sin came into the world. And that, I believe, is, is what Solomon's reminding us of. He uses the term, all are from dust and to dust all return. Well, back in Genesis, it says this in terms of the curse. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. He's saying, look, what, what's the meaning of all of this? You know, we, we just go through life and then we die. And then he goes on back in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 21. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Here is a moment of honest questioning. Obviously, he had heard that. Yeah, the, the, it, there is a difference between man and animal. But he says, in that, that moment of honesty, he says, but who knows, really? Do, do we really know that's the case? Verse 22. So I saw that there was nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work. For that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what, uh, what will be after him? Another glimpse of insight. You see, he's kind of going back and forth, and it's almost as if he's fighting, he, he, fighting it. He says, I, I know this, but, but I look around and I see all of this frustration, and it's dragging me down quicker than I can be reminded of the, the truth, the truthful things of God. Verse uh, chapter 4, then. Again, I saw the oppressions that are done under the sun Behold, the tears of the oppressed, they had no one to comfort them. And that's the frustration. He's saying, look, those that, the, the poor and the oppressed, they don't even have anyone to, to help them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. There was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living. See what he's saying? The dead who are already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who's not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. He's saying those that have already died, they're better off than we are. They're not facing this. But then he takes it even a step further. And he says, you know, It'd be better not to be born. You know, the, the modern day way of saying that way too often is, well, I'm not bringing a child into this kind of a world. Looking at the world and saying, I, I don't want to bring a child into this. And of course, if you don't have Christ... And if you don't believe in a sovereign God, you know what? I, I can understand that. I might be saying the same thing. Because we think we're on our own if you don't have Christ. Mo another modern day view of that from the Sopranos. 
not, not these Sopranos, the, <laughs> the HBO Sopranos, one of their characters, said, it's all a big nothing. In the end, you die in your own arms. Now, you know what? If you believe that, that would explain why the Sopranos live like the Sopranos, right? You know, if, if you really believe it's all a big nothing, then what would restrain you from doing whatever pleased you at that moment, regardless of what it meant to anyone else? In verse 4, then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from man's envy of his neighbor. <laughs> all these things. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. Now, at this, this downward spiral, let me just stop here and give a little bit of an application, a couple of cautions of things that can easily cause you to spiral down more quickly and, and quickly like him, because we do face some things in our day. One of them, one of those things, just from a real practical sense, is I think is listening or watching too much news. <laughs> now, think about that. I don't care if you watch CNN or MSNBC or Fox News. You know what a lot of people do? They'll flip it on and they just leave it on. And what happens is you, get, you go through the cycle and then they start again on the same thing, giving a, maybe a slightly different angle or the same thing again, and it's bombarding you. When, when we go on vacation, Connie started this, because I'm susceptible to that. <laughs> Connie said, how about we do a news moratorium, huh? And so I have, I do cut back. Here's what I found from that. You know what? I come back in a week and the world's still here. It's gone on. And I don't really feel like I've missed anything. And I'm more relaxed. It can, it can drag you in. It can suck you in. Because of the cynicism of the world we live in. I don't care what political persuasion you're coming from. And, and a second caution is buying into the, uh, what I'd call the water cooler philosophy. I don't, I don't even know if offices have water coolers anymore. I guess it's bottled water. But, you know, the, the idea uh, of that would be during a break, everybody kind of gathering around. And I, I worked for the Farmer's Home Administration all through college and seminary. I worked in a warehouse. And I constantly fought it. As far as I know, I was the only Christian in, in there. They called me the Rev. I wasn't even, I wasn't a pastor or anything. And uh, I sat around with bitter government employees. Now, if you have bitter employees you work with, I just have to tell you, bitter government employees are even more cynical, <laughs> at least in my mind. But it was a constant struggle to not fall into that and not be dragged into it, to be cynical about everyone and everything 
that was going on. Now, he gives us some options here to cope with cynicism. Some of them good, some of them bad. We'll go through them quickly. Uh, Verse 5, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Very simply, when one's hands are folded, you can't use them for work. There are people that opt out. You know, they, they either say, oh, well, okay, I'll just gut it out till I retire and I'll just opt out of this. Or they just quit working. Other places in Proverbs make that clear, that that, that is a foolish thing. And then he, he talks about uh, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. One commentator calls that self-cannibalism, meaning a self-destructive attitude. And that's a danger. It's not a good option. It's just an escape and at best temporary. Second option is that of uh, kind of hands cupped open in order to acquire as much as possible. Uh, Verse 6, better is a handful of quietness than, here's the second option, two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. Now, at first glance, two hands full sounds better in our society, doesn't it? Get more, achieve more, it's always better. That's what so many of us are taught. That certainly is what our world would say. Get more, achieve more. And yet, it's not a good option either. He calls it a striving after the wind. Jesus gave several parables about that. One, he talks about uh, storing up uh, food in barns. Sounds like a great thing to do, just, just in case something happens, acquiring more and more. But then he ends it by saying, you know, when you die, fool, when you die, the night your soul's required of you and the things have prepared, you've prepared, whose will they be? And then he goes on and says, so the one who lays up treasure for himself is not rich toward God. The third option is a handful of quietness. It's kind of a strange turn of a a phrase. There are places in Proverbs where it talks about something similar. Maybe this will give us some insight. Proverbs 15, 16. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord, then great treasure and trouble with it. Proverbs 16, 8, better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. 17, 1, better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Now, how can one work in quietness when you're in the middle of a, a cutthroat world of injustice and vicious competition? that ultimately only ends in death. Well, again, gut it out till retirement or jump in and become cutthroat as well, like Lee Atwater. Well, let's see what Jesus says. Each week we have, we've kind of gone from this under-the-sun perspective of living in this world to trying to rise to the above the sun perspective and seeing what the rest of Scripture says. Jesus says this, Therefore, do not be anxious 
And I think you could say, don't be cynical. Saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. What he's saying there in terms of saying the Gentiles, he's saying those people that don't know God, that's what they're worried about. And he says, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. It goes back to what he said in the, in the parable, and that is, it's a richness towards God. That's the only way to live in quietness among all the rumble. Is being right with the creator of the universe through Jesus Christ. A proper view of life enables us to, to deal with this rampant cynicism. A proper view of death helps us have a proper view of this life. And I'm convinced that's why these things are intertwined here. Because a wrong view of death will just make us more cynical. A right view of death helps us view this life in a whole different way so that we don't end up like that character from The Sopranos saying it's, it's nothing, you just die in your own arms. So what did Jesus say about a right view of death? He said, I'm the resurrection, the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he said, do you believe this? I think Solomon would say, that's really the question. That's really the question. So how do these fit together? Living in this life that is so cynical and death, why are these together? Dealing with injustice, faith, facing life without cynicism, and facing death as we all will? Well, I told you about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Even though... He did what he could to oppose Hitler. And some would say he lost everything. He was executed just a few weeks, just a few weeks before the war was over. The truth is, Bonhoeffer didn't lose. He lived in this fallen world, but he did not succumb to an under-the-sun perspective, to an under-the-sun earthly cynicism. But he had an above-the-sun perspective. When he was about to be hanged, these are his last recorded words. He didn't know what was going to happen, but he was called out of a room. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, come. And he said this to those that were in the room. This is the end. For me, the beginning of life. He did know what was about to happen. 
this is the end. That's what the world would say. That's the under the sun perspective. But he didn't stop there. It's the end of this life. For me, it's the real beginning of life. The only record of his death was from the camp doctor who wrote this down. He didn't even know who Bonhoeffer was at the time. He'd seen untold numbers die. And he said, in almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. That comes from an above-the-sun understanding of this life and the next. May God grant us that understanding to live out our lives every single day in Christ. Let's bow together. Thank you, Lord, for your perspective, which is truth, which is right, which is light for us. Will you grant it to us, your people? And Lord, for those here that don't know you, that are, have fallen into cynicism because they don't see a hope in this world or the next, help them to see there is one hope, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name.